You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Britain up, theater people, and welcome to Your Program is Your Ticket, coming to you from the Hell's Kitchen area of Midtown Manhattan, right smack dab in the middle of Broadway. And today it's snowing. We have Snowstorm Stella right outside the window. My name is Sean Chandler, and I'll be your host. Your Program is Your Ticket is a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make them happen. As many of you know, and if you don't, then let me explain it to you. Your program is your ticket is a helpful system where your program is literally your ticket to get into the theater in smaller, more intimate productions. It's these works we like to highlight, and it's our goal on this show to feature as many of these productions as possible while still discussing the biggies. I love theater and see as much as I can wherever I go. During the travels of the production of my husband and my play, At the Flash, I've met many wonderful people from all over the world in the theater community, and it is my honor to bring them on as guests to the show. Tonight's guest will be Chicago-based theater actress, director, and writer, the amazingly talented Delia Kropp. We'll be bringing Delia on in just a few minutes, but first I'd like to talk about an interesting experience that sort of raised my ears a little. It's a weird saying, raised my ears, uh, perked my ears, I don't know, pricked up my ears. I'll move on. A theater shortcut is what I'm talking about. It was really interesting when, when I went to the theater recently to see a terrific production of a play called Bareback Inc., which has been produced by the IRT Theater. I went in with the director of our show at The Flash, David Zach, who is visiting from Chicago. Um, this play is about the relationship of a young man in a very strange situation who has a standing appointment with an older tattoo artist. That's all I'll really go into because you should see the play and, and watch what happens. It's very, very, very cool. It's written by Bob Bartlett and directed by David Drake, who's a, a director out here in New York City. Um, this, this show was in one of those smaller theaters in a large multi-business building that I was talking about a few shows ago, where like you see a, a, a church or you see something that looks like a clothing factory and then you go in and you go up uh, in an elevator a few floors and you walk into a room and it's a giant theater or not necessarily giant, but giant for, for the room that it's in. Um, and this particular production was set up more like a theater space. Um, the, the staging was really incredible and it was very, very multimedia. And in this particular show, they used a projector to show scenes against a hanging sheet. So occasionally, you know, there would be uh, a, a, a photo or there would be footage of something hung done on this sheet. And it, it wasn't like a sheet that was just put up there to serve as a, um, like a, 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 a screen. It was, it was done artistically. So I don't want you to think this was like a garage play or anything like that. Um, and the show had a blackout at the end. Now, after the show, David Drake, its director asked David Zach the director of At The Flash, I know so many directors, uh, about whether the projector continued with its blank light after the blackout, meaning that was there like a, a, a vision of a, like a faint light because they couldn't get the projector to completely go off and go black. And David Zach, our director, said yes and gave him a suggestion. He said that in The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which I saw and, and recommended highly, um, on a, a few shows ago, uh, they had a, a screen. They used a screen that they showed images on throughout the musical. And when they had a blackout, 
the stage manager had rigged up a piece of cardboard to a string and sent it over to the tech booth, which was, I believe, on the other side of the theater. And when they needed a full blackout, the screen could be blacked out by the stage manager pulling on this string and this piece of cardboard dropping onto the lens, which was, which was really crazy. I was like, Oh my God, that's so, that's so inventive. And that's, these are the kind of things that, that, um, that small theaters have to do to make it work. And I just, I just thought it was really cool. I loved all of that MacGyver stuff. And then I was thinking back to remembering seeing Wicked recently, which is a huge, gigantic show. And I sat like in the front row on the very, very end. And I even saw there's this, there's a scene where Fierro, um, the male lead, uh, he swings in from a rope and, and that's how he starts a scene. And I remember looking over and they actually just, the, one of the uh, crew guys had a ladder and just put a ladder over there and he climbed up it and grabbed onto the vine and then swung in. So I thought, wow, it's just, you know, it's just, you don't, it's weird. It's just strange the things that we do in, in theater to, to make it work. And so it, it was really cool. Um, by the way, you really should check out Bareback Inc. if you're in the New York City area. I know it sort of has a, a bit of a salacious title, but it is a very, very good, interesting, funny show with a great message. Um, it runs until March 18th, and if you would like to go see it, go to uh, www.irttheater.org, and that's theater with an E-R. Again, an E-R, not an R-E, because, you know, theater, we spell theater both ways out here. So, anyways, um, uh, I just thought that that was an interesting thing that that had happened, and it really just sort of struck with me, and um, it was it was cool. Anyways, so now for our guest, as I indicated earlier, today's guest is the de- is the delightful, multi talented Delia Crop. Hi, Delia, and welcome to your program. Is your ticket? Hello, how you doing, there, Sean? Oh, I'm great. Thank you again for being a guest on the show. Um, you were so wonderful in the production that I saw. Prior to meeting you, I remember I met you. No, actually, I came in, I was with my husband, and uh, we were in Chicago, and Delia did a production of a great play called Raggedy Ant, A-N-D, by a, a, an extremely talented, wonderful writer named David Valdez Greenwood, um, who is also a very, very cool person. We've had the chance to become friends with him over the last uh, year and a half or so, and he's just, he's just an awesome guy. And I remember we met you beforehand, and then we saw the show, and I was blown away by your performance as Andy, who is the lead in Raggedy Ann. Um, would you be willing to to tell us a little bit about that show? Uh, sure. Um, the, the play uh, is the play from the current perspective in time is is rather interesting because it basically deals with the inauguration of our first female president. And uh, my character's role within that scenario is that I am the inaugural poet of, that's not not too big a spoiler, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I am the inaugural poet for our new uh, female president. Her name, Hannah Coleman, H.C. What does that sound like? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) and, uh, the, the bulk of the story, of course, however, is about the characters and about the people and how they function within this uh, new emerging uh, political uh, reality. And, uh, of course, 
when this play was originally performed, almost exactly a year ago, last March and April, we were pretty darn sure that Hillary was going to be the president. And so this was a wonderful look forward um, towards all of the, you know, the things that we were looking to expect, which we were, were kind of vague in our mind, but we figured that they would be at least as good as Obama and maybe better if we got more Democrats in the House or something. <laughs> it was just sort of sort of this vague visionary utopia and this play very much embodies that um not least of all in the case of uh, gender identity and sexual preference um all of the characters in the play are um lgbt um which is really interesting and, and the playwright says he didn't realize it but we cover all lgbt <laughs> my character is both trans and lesbian uh, my partner um, is is a uh, is lesbian, cisgender. Our son is bisexual, and um, his uh, new boyfriend is gay. So there's that. Um, my character is, as I mentioned, was the um, uh, is the uh, newly appointed inaugural poet, and uh, she is approaching this kind of this whole situation with her son and kind of this emerging situation, I should say, with her son and new boyfriend um, in a very parental way. <laughs> they're very liberal, of course, but they're still not quite sure what to make of all of this. So <laughs> uh, it, it was a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm I, can't go into all of the nuances of right here, the story plot, but it was it was great. And for me, it was my return to the stage after a hiatus of 10, 11 years. I had not been acting. Wow. I, I would have never known. I, I just remember thinking that you have such, there's just such a calm nature to you on stage. And I personally think that that calm and silence is very, very attractive. That's where my eye will go. You can have somebody, you know, doing somersaults and cartwheels on stage and another person watching them, and I'll be watching the person watching them. It's, it's to me, stillness is, is very, uh, it, it has a gravitation on stage. Well, thank and, you very much. So I, yeah. I just thought you were sensational, and so did my husband, David. Thank you so, very much. I'll just throw another David in the mix. That's, that's like four Davids for this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, technically, if you count my dead name, it's five. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> I didn't even Too think about it. Too many Davids. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your creative theater passion? Okay. Um, my, my theater passion actually starts before my professional career back when I was in high school. I was uh, cast in the junior, uh, the junior class play, the lead in the senior class play. And uh, but I had so much momentum throughout my entire childhood and high school years as an artist, as a painter and drawer. Mm. And that's how I got a full ride to college was on an art scholarship. Um, uh, that ended up not working out so well, not the scholarship, but the, uh, the art uh, studies. And so I switched over to theater and uh, 
within a short time, I got my first professional job with them doing Shakespeare in the Park and Lansing, Michigan, Michigan State University, and then um, with the Midwest premiere of Equus at the now sadly departed Boar's Head Theater in Lansing, Michigan. Um, and uh, got uh, my training uh, shortly after that at the Drama Studio of London, which is one of the small boutique uh, <laughs> the theater schools that dot the map there. Mm. And uh, very, very good training. So I uh, came back and landed myself in Chicago, and I've been here most of that time, most of that time in the profession, until about uh, 2006 when it was clear that something was happening with my gender situation. So I took a break for about 10 years. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Well, and, and it was David's play that lured you back in and, and brought you back into your passion for acting. Right, exactly. Wow, wow. That's, that's, that's really neat. Um, I, I, what were you feeling artistically? Were you feeling the pull artistically when you took that 10-year hiatus? Um, or did you just say, now it's just not the right time? Or was it both? That's a really good question. Um, I never lost my love of theater. Um, I found, since I did not begin my gender journey until the age of 47, mm-hmm. that for me to really figure out what this was all about, mm-hmm. that I just felt I really needed to distance myself as much as I could from my previous male existence. And right front and center in that male existence was my identity as a theater artist, as an actor, director. Uh, secondly, and probably just as importantly, is that I was already feeling very vulnerable and very exposed as someone who identified as a straight white male to suddenly have this sudden vein of feminine identity just so so finally after all these years thrust in my attention and to deal with I just couldn't do this uh, in the public eye. And even when you're just directing or just an actor auditioning around, you are in the public eye. You are very exposed uh, emotionally. Everybody knows your business. Yes, we talk about each other in the theater. How about that? (laughs) Imagine (laughs) that. (laughs) I could not visualize doing the, what, the discovery, exploration, uh, experimentation, whatever it would take uh, to figure out what was the next step for me and still being under the theater microscope. So uh, I was actually doing a show, uh, two, two shows, one as an actor, one as a director, during this sort of the beginning of this process. And when I was up there on the stage, and my, as it turned out, my grandfather's suit that I had tailored for me was just perfect for the role I was doing. I just felt like I was in drag, just not me at all. And 
<laughs> there's something about the theater that really just intensifies so much, doesn't it? It focuses so much of what's happening in the moment. And for me, it actually shone a spotlight into me, not just on the surface of the character that I was presenting to the audience. And uh, so, okay, that's it. I've, I've got to take a break. So I did. Wow. So it was sort of like a, a, a double dose of vulnerability. Yep. Oh, wow. That's, well, that's, that's a good reason, I think, to take a break and, you know, um, and then get back to it when you feel more comfortable. Yeah, I had many friends, of course, who were in the theater. Uh, not least of all was my um, ex-wife, my former partner, who I maintained a good friendship with throughout my gender transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, her career actually just blossomed during about the same time. And, <laughs> um, she uh, won a, a Jeff Award, which, of course, is our local Tony Award here in Chicago. Sure. And was just just going great guns, and she, you know she was very kind. She'd bring me to whatever uh, opening night parties, um, other theater events, uh, social theater events. So I got to meet people while I was going through my gender awkward phase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Neither really male or female, or kind of both, did my presentation. Um, so that I kind of, you know, at least kept sort of half a foot in, but just not doing it. Just, you know, meeting people and when watching shows, keeping up with what was being produced. So, yeah. Cool. Well, you have quite a background and you wear so many different hats as an artist. What do you consider to be your forte or your specialty? Oh, boy. <laughs> that is a real tough one. Excuse me. <coughs> um. I don't know. I think that both my acting and my directing reinforce each other. I really do. Um, And of course, this is an observation that many theater artists have made before, but directing, you've got to keep the entire big story in mind. You've got to keep the ideas behind the story uh, front and center. Um, And uh, as 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 an actor, you are so attuned to the moment and to every little nuance and detail that goes on between the performers uh, that you're on stage with and, uh, and that audience. And, you know, that's, which is something, of course, the director never really directly experiences. They're sitting up there in the house maybe, and, you know, being part of the audience. But so the perspectives, uh, the priorities, whatever, uh, between the two functions are very different, but they're all, focused on that one thing, which is telling this story in the most complete possible way you can. So, um, yeah. And my, de- my design background in theater, of course, or in art, excuse me, is, is um, very useful for, for directing, talking with designers and composing stage pictures and so forth. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of all of those uh, activities, or does, does it just depend upon the project? I love all my children equally. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it depends on the project, really. Although I must say, since uh, I'm really partial to the acting right now, simply because I have never done this as me uh-huh. until the last couple of years. And it is exhilarating. It's thrilling to finally base a character, base my work on myself, my true self, in a sense, this may sound oversimplifying, but in a sense, what I was always doing before is I was always pretending to be male, pretending to be my character. 
sort of a Russian dolls thing, so that my work was always at least one step removed from a real, a real grounded, solid awareness, you know, or presence of who I was. And, you know, accordingly, I always liked to do character parts. I looked very young ingenue-ish, but, you know, give me some beard and a spirit gum and a funny accent and a limp, you know, and <laughs> because it just brought me further from myself. Wow. Thinking back on this, it's, yeah, it seems all very consistent with, you know, the kinds of theater I like to do, the kinds of acting I like to do. I didn't want to deal with me. I didn't want to base a character on me. I didn't know what the hell that was. Hmm. So now what you saw in Azandi, my work Azandi, was the first time I'd had a chance to do that on my feet three-dimensionally, not just sitting in a chair. I'd done a lot of readings in the year before, but I'd never put that on its feet. And uh, wow, the difference, it just, it's night and day, just night and day. Um, and uh, it was so much fun. It's interesting what you said about stillness. I, I guess I never really thought about it. Um, one of the things I always look for in performances is stillness as well, because I think that's just something that naturally occurs in the human being when we are totally, when our attention is totally immersed. So if your character is really thinking about what they're saying, is really truly listening to another character strongly, there's this sense of stillness about them that they must have. Um, Richard Burton made a really big thing about this when he was in rehearsal for his, his Hamlet that he did for John Gielgud, where he said, yeah, it's, it's coming along, it's coming along, you know, as the, as the opening came closer, but I don't have the stillness yet. He knew that the sense of his character really thinking and really being in that moment wasn't going to be there until he could at least technically make himself still. <laughs> wow. Make it really happen so he really just would naturally be still. Um, and I guess that was just easier and more natural for me to do as Andy, perhaps, than it had ever been before. Oh, wow. That's, that's a, 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 great, a great observation and, and a great point of view to realize. I... I, I, I I'm loving this. This is awesome. Um, what messages and themes do you strive to convey to audiences through the projects you choose? Oh, boy. There are so many. Um, I, I can think I can speak best to what is of interest to me now. Um, of course, being transgender, you have no choice but to live as a political person. I have been politicized because of my gender status. Um, society is questioning me, is trying to find a place for me, is trying to find what legal rights or protections I may or may not have. Accordingly, I'm a little concerned about putting messages out there about gender. Um, and so... Uh, those are what concern me most right now, and that's the kind of theater I think that most gets my attention. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, what do you think is an important direction theater is taking right now overall? Oh, uh, well, of course, we've just had a big curveball thrown at us with this election. 
And um, I think the theater is in the process of also becoming politicized um, because it has to be for its very survival, um, mm -hmm. not just a loss of the National Endowment for the Arts, but for just the whole culture. I mean, we have a president right now that would just as soon wipe everything artistic from the face of the earth except his reality show, <laughs> which is not art. Not art. Um, <laughs> So, uh, and of course, and also, like trans, um, transgender people are not the only group of us that are being politicized, that are being, you know, having a harsh light shown on us, and the arts community is responding to that. Um, accordingly, we are even more focused now on um, making the world on stage look more like this, like the uh, world that we move in, so that all genders, all. Uh, physical abilities, all races, ethnicities are seen to be represented. To me, that may not be a, an artistic theme, but that is very much a presentational thing. That is very much how we are, how we are doing the shows that we are doing now. Um, and I think that's kind of what characterizes the theater movement, at least in Chicago, here it is. Wow. You know, I, 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 I understand the feeling of being... Uh, sort of like a political ping pong ball, um, not necessarily in your shoes, but I remember when uh, my husband and I got married, we got married back in the, during the Prop 8 window in California. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm sure you are. Yes. Um, yeah. And then for probably about three or four years, uh, our marriage was toyed with in the courts of California and the courts of, in the Supreme Court uh, eventually. And, and it was it was a necessary step that we had to take, but it's like, why in the world? Who who do you, when I I pay taxes and I work and I contribute to society? What what in the world gives these people the right to play with my freedom and my rights like this? So I hear you. It's it's a feeling of of almost powerlessness um, at times and. Helplessness, and personally, I think that we, as artists, have an opportunity to be able to bring that to light. And that's one of the that's that's the fortunate nature, I think, of what we do is reflecting society, and it almost sort of like is is empowering in a way. Do you ever feel that with the work that you do? Oh yes. Um, in fact, actually, coming back to uh, Raggedy Ann and my character of Andy. Um, at the very end of the play, as you'll recall, um, is the actual that's the actual delivery of her poem at the inaugural um, uh, celebration. Oh yeah, and that's uh, a very beautifully written um, inaugural poem. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it will still be delivered by a future president. We don't know. <laughs> but uh, but the poem focuses very much on the concept of who is subject to liberty and justice for all. We say all, but never in the 200 plus years of this country has, has that applied. Some people, like the pigs in 1984, or Animal Farm rather, Animal Farm, are a little more uh, equal than others. Hmm. That justice and liberty has been unequally distributed. And that impacts 
everything in this country, who has the most money, who has the most education, who has the most access to all the resources that, you know, lead to happiness. And as long as some people have a whole lot more than others, which is really happening right now, then, then the society inevitably starts to split and tear apart. Um, so yeah, theater can't address that because all those butts in those seats out there for the 90 minutes to two, two and a half hours, they're equal. They're thinking and feeling as one body politic. Um, your individual uh, prejudices and backgrounds and viewpoints, yes, of course they come into play. You never completely shed your individuality, but you gain this big other identity, this identity and then so yeah obviously uh, issues surrounding politics surrounding equality surrounding the bigger picture um it's such a wonderful lab you have to explore those ideas are there any particular shows within your area or or that you've seen in general that you feel exemplify the this new vision or direction of theater oh boy there are so many um I'll just highlight uh, one or two here that I've seen recently. Um, one of my favorite directors is, uh, has just come to Chicago from New York City, and of course that would be Will Davis, who oh, yeah. is also uh, serving as the artistic director of American Theatre Company here in Chicago now. And he opened with um, a production again that was uh, first, I believe, premiered in Manhattan um, at Playwrights Horizons. Uh, that was um, Men in Boats. And um, Will's basic take on his theater work now is uh, is to really look seriously on the issues of gender and uh, how it's shaped our history, how it shapes our interaction, people, how it shapes our own sense of ourself. And uh, he's now just about to uh, premiere a very interesting reimagining of um, William Inge's Picnic, but I'm, that I'm very eager to see. Um, is are, is that more the, of a director's or than it is any one play or any class of play? Um, but uh, there are so many works that that, that address uh, racial injustice here by so many wonderful writers. Uh, it's, it's almost hard to single them out right now. It's a really interesting time to be in theater. It really <laughs> um, is that the uh, the picnic that's out here right now in repertory with. Um, What's the name of the play? I think I just saw it. Uh, Come Back, Little Sheba, or what's the it's, name of it? It's the same play because those are the same play, right? But that's not the Will Day. Oh, okay. Will's, Will's version is not your grandfather's picnic. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I really wanted to see Men in Boats, but. Cast, uh, reverse cast, reverse gender. It's been cast with uh, transgender performers in certain roles. Um, very, very unexpected. Uh, Casting. I actually had the privilege to see an um, the first, the second, the second rehearsal. He opened one of the early rehearsals up to a select audience of people to give them an idea of what lay ahead, and uh, it kind of blew us all away. That really shines a light into a into a play, which of course is all about gender roles, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know what what was normal and what was expected of people in the early fifties. What was in terms of finding a mate, in terms of what women in particular, what their opportunities would be um, as single people versus as married people. Yeah, and uh, we're now looking at this through a very, very different 21st century lens. Uh, 
Well, I, I remember I, I tried to get a ticket to – I tried several times to get a ticket to Men in Boats, and it was already, it was always sold out out here. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. So, um, I, I love that we – one of the things that we can do with these older classic plays and plays that have been released to to be licensed uh, to the public, we can – in smaller theaters, we can take those and we can, we can break them down. And we can uh, find new messages and and new points of view and new themes within them. I th- I think that's a wonderful thing that that we can we can do with smaller productions. It's 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 nice. Um, what do you think is the best part of being involved with with smaller productions? Well, what you just highlighted there, for one, we can take bigger risks artistically. Uh, we can do more experimentation. We can respond more to what's happening in the moment. Um, small, really small theaters, they don't even program even a full, full year ahead in many cases. They may just simply say, well, we've got this empty slot right here of three months. What do we need to do right now? Um, what does the world need? Um, that kind of um, uh, flexibility, nimbleness. Um, uh, yeah, and also, frankly, the poor theater, as Grotowski, I think it is, would, would address it, or Artaud, um, it focuses on what's really important. You you spend a lot of money and a lot of artistic time and hair pulling on getting the lights right and the expensive costumes right and the sets right. In a poor theater, you ain't got none of that. Right. You know, nobody gets paid, hardly nothing. And uh, the focus is more on the people than it is on the things. Uh, not, that the, not that design is not a terribly important aspect of theater, and especially in larger houses, which, of course, are the ones that reach the most people. You know, you're in here in town, we got the Steppenwolf, the Goodman, Chicago, Shakespeare, big, big houses. The design is absolutely critical. Sure. The people are tiny little dots on that stage. Too much of the audience, the design has to reinforce and amplify what they're doing. But in a smaller theater, you keep the emphasis on what the actors are doing and on the words which is really where theater grew from, right? You know, us sitting around on the campfire and telling each other stories. And we can never, never, ever lose that, what, what we're really all about. And small theater, um, if only by the fact that they can't afford anything more than <laughs> always uh, goes back to that. We have to be way more resourceful. Yeah, you were just talking about the lovely little story about the projector light. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, an, another guest that I had on who's also somebody that uh, has been in one of my sh- a reading of one of my shows. Her name is Melissa Young, and she was a she's a dramaturge and a literary agent as well, or a literary manager. And she has a theory of a theater on five dollars. She says she walks up to people and says. How did you do that for $5? Because I know you didn't have any more than $5 to do that with. <laughs> How did you put that actress in that gorgeous, you know, gown for $5? Because I know you only had $5. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> and true. <laughs> it sure feels that way sometimes, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> Indeed. Um, $5 nowadays just goes for bus fare to get you to the theater. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, what should every theatrical artist, director, writer, composer, actor, be doing right now to be relevant and successful in the industry? Well, relevant and successful? Mm, those are not necessarily the same thing, are they? Uh, successful in terms of money-making, I don't know. I don't know what, 
what the projects are that are going to Broadway or that are, you know, setting the world on fire, uh, the, the upper echelons. But in order to be relevant, I think that you've got to you know, keep an eye on the future um, as expressed through what's going on here politically. I hate to keep coming back to that, but it's something we cannot, you know, we cannot ignore. We cannot just keep doing old productions of Rodgers and Hammerstein and pretending, you know, that this, this isn't happening right now. I mean, those are nice escapes and nice release valves, those type, those types of very traditional, older, from another time, they almost feel like fairy tales now, type of theater stories. But you've got to have your eye firmly on where things are now that a good number of us because of our sexual preference, our gender orientation, our race, our religion, are now in the crosshairs of a very dangerous government. And um, we ignore that at our peril. We will literally have our numbers be depleted if things get much worse in the same way that the AIDS epidemic, you know, depleted many of us in the 80s and 90s. And I'm not trying to be overdramatic here. I truly believe that. Um, that we are just a couple of goose steps away from being a very, very bad country to live in. Um, so we need to keep our mind on telling the stories that get these messages out to people that don't let us just bury our heads in the sand um, and that make sure that we, we have stories that focus on the we, not just the me. Um, Americans are very much about rugged individuality, and many of our plays and musicals reflect that. But we are also a country that is committed you know, to, to liberty and freedom of expression. And for, for many of those things, you really have to look out for one another. Mm. <laughs> really do, not just number one. Um, and those types of stories are being written now. And the plays, the traditional plays that do... Than that are also being revived now. Um, Cradle Roll Rock is actually coming back. I forget where. All those things at the '30s Agitprop Theater. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and plays that don't—they are not even as overtly political as that one, but just plays that bring our awareness to our fellow man. And uh, yeah, so relevance, <laughs> yes, in terms of success. I don't know. Maybe relevance will be successful eventually. I don't know. <laughs> Theater has a way of eventually getting there. Witness Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he had a nice head start too with with his great show of In the Heights. So. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Um, well, I agree. I think that uh, activism theater is really important right now. We just we just can't rest on our laurels. Our laurels being you know the old school musicals and things like that, which uh, are nice to see, but. You know, and especially when they, they, they're relevant and they, they said something when they edified the audience and they had a message and, and how that can flip around and pertain to now. So I, I, I totally agree with you on that. There, but there, there is a balance, too. So, um, Tim, Tell us what you've been working on lately. What have you got going on? Well, um, of course, I just finished um, I Am My Own Wife. Um, and uh, you were in New York, I believe. I, I was. It. I'm so sorry I missed that. I... Um, I'll just, just to give a quick recap, because that's old news now. Um, um, our, our production of I Am My Own Wife was at the very same theater where that famous New York uh, Tony-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning play was actually first performed uh, in front of an audience, not just, you know, sitting around reading that. And uh, No way, Really? 
Yep, it was about face theater. I actually first mounted I Am My Own Wife oh back my in 2003. Yes, it was. Um, and of course, that was the original Moises Kaufman production um, with the original actor. Mm-hmm. With uh, Jefferson Mays. Jefferson was, you know, was brilliant in that. And then, of course, we got a second crack at it after it was taken to New York City, developed, I, again, I believe it, Playwrights Horizon, if I'm not mistaken, and then went on to Broadway. Then a very, very limited um, tour was, uh, well, was brought back to just a couple of three uh, cities, and uh, Chicago got a second crack at it uh, through the Goodman. But uh, our production... Um, and this was kind of my idea. I brought this to the artistic director um, for his consideration, uh, Andrew Volkoff. And uh, I said, Andrew, this play is a beautiful play. It has probably one of the best written, most complex uh, transgender characters embedded in there among 35 or 36 other characters. Mm-hmm. And it deserves to live. But you cannot keep having... Charlotte von Malsdorf being played, being suggested by a cisgender actor. We live in a different world now, and I think of this beautiful play as to continue to have a life. A transgender person must be able to play this, and I, for one, do not feel comfortable having to play 34, 35 male characters. Um, is there, you know, and I, and I came up with a possible solution for unembedding Charlotta, which was basically to have a multiple char- a multiple actor version of this, where, um, as it turned out, three other actors were employed to portray the other characters, and I played only Charlotta von Malsdorf. Um, there were many advantages to this besides just giving me a really nice transgender role to play. Um, one of the advantages was that, um, A, you have a real transgender person embodying her for the full two hours of that theater experience, and people have remarked how, how different that was. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something very theatrical about us. <laughs> we wow. are just, we're, and we're sort of a curiosity. Many people have never seen a transgender person live, or they've never seen one on stage, where you've got, again, all the differences and things are a little amplified or a little brought into focus. Also, frankly, we had a much better, um, uh, more tools to tell the story. Um, many of the great scenes in I Am My Own Wife are involved two or even three people. For one actor to do, you know, the old head snap, boom, he said, she said, um, even if it's done brilliantly, which it was done by Jefferson, is a lot different than having two living human actors looking at each other and responding to each other's body language and being in that moment as two humans with a relationship that you can see right there. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as being able to flesh out scenes that involve you know, not being interrogated by Nazis um, and when you actually see two big, rough-looking guys uh, portraying those Nazis is a lot different than simply you know, one person talking about it. Sure. Um, story elements were brought forward very vivid way um, so anyway so we broke some new ground on this and thank the lord that the playwright Doug Wright um, who now has a show opening, War Paint on Broadway mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
okayed, okayed our version of this, gave it, a, gave it his blessing. And when he came to see it, um, was very, very enthused about what we had done, um, the level of artistry that we had achieved, as well as just you know the basic idea of our little version or reimagining. Um, so we felt really good about that. Um, what I'm doing now, right now, is actually behind the scenes. I am curating a, a, a play contest, um, Pride Films and Plays, which, of course, David Zack, the producing director of that, mm-hmm. um, uh, is having its very first great trans play and musical contest. And it is uh, open specifically to transgender playwrights. So all of our authors will be uh, trans or gender nonconforming. And they are going to uh, submit us, are submitting right now, uh, stories um, from their lens and their experience. Um, this has never been done by Pride Films and Plays. Um, similar play contests, I believe, have been sponsored in other cities. I do not think Chicago has ever hosted one. Uh, we will have uh, two runners up and then one winner. The winner will get a uh, five days of uh, rehearsal workshopping. Uh, being able to take another look at the show carefully in a rehearsal process with actors, and then it will get two public staged readings um, at the end of that. That will be on June 10th and 11th here in Chicago at the Pride Arts Center. Um, This will give us an opportunity to really put into motion my other behind-the-scenes effort, which is working with the entire Chicago theater community right now to find uh, a... to really take a look at transgender theater artists and stories about transgender human beings uh, with an eye towards really figuring out what to do with us in such a way that it does honor and respect to trans people and that we start utilizing the theater artists that we have here that are gender nonconforming. <laughs> that effort doesn't even really have a name right now. It's called the Trans Panel because we had a panel discussion back on November 29th while I and my own wife was still running. We had over 100 people in this room, artistic directors, casting directors, managing directors, dramaturgs, leaders in the Chicago theater scene for 90 minutes doing nothing about listening to transgender people, listening to um, other cisgender theater artists who had staged transgender plays, uh, listening to their challenges, uh, what, were the, what were the casting challenges, uh, how did you decide what stories to do, um, would you make the same decisions now, over a year later, or has the world changed and moved on in certain key ways? And it was amazing. Everybody was so enthused about it. And, of course, this, the idea of this whole initiative is to come up with a series of guidelines and resources. Not rules, but just guidelines and resources so that when theater companies go, hey, we want to do a story and it happens to have a trans person in it, or we want to have an entire story that is about the trans experience, trans people, that they'll know... <laughs> What kind of stories are merely exploitation and what kind really look at us as real living three-dimensional human beings? Which ones will expand cisgender people's idea of us and which ones will simply reinforce their own existing stereotypical narrow narrow view of us? Uh, And also, what resources do they have to find these theater artists that can best put this um, truly and authentically out of the stage, what directors, what playwrights, and of course what actors uh, are available 
uh, here in Chicago and around the country, you know, to do this. Um, these are big issues. And to look at a segment of our theater community under the microscope like this is, I don't know. I mean, obviously we have groups that are, you know, Latin theater associations and that address other racial and uh, religious groups. But for the entire theater community to be in on this and to go, wow, this is important. We've, we've got to do this right. And to take a real nuts and bolts look at how to do this, I think is kind of unprecedented. The play contest that we're doing back at Pride Films in Place is seeking to address some of those questions. Um, what kind, especially what kind of stories um, really are going to serve both the theater community and the transgender community best, and thereby serve our audiences best too. Um, so uh, we're kind of, kind of a little like a little demonstration, maybe, of some possibilities, you know, that what can be amplified throughout the, the whole uh, theater scene here. So very excited about those two things. Um, not going to be on the stage until probably. I think right now it's going to be like September when I'm involved in a new musical uh, on the life of Albert Cashier. I don't know how much I can talk about that. That's okay. <laughs> it's a musical. It'll be a world premiere, and it'll be done here in Chicago. And uh, for the first time, you get to hear me sing on the stage. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. I bet you're a great singer. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> well, I have a wonderful baritone voice. So how to reconcile that with a cisgender female character is one of the little challenges we're going to address here. <laughs> but it's like so much of this whole gender thing. If I could like just put a whole umbrella over this, is that we're all just kind of figuring this out as we go along. Mm -hmm. uh, not just in gender, but where all of us fit in on the stage and how to make the best use of people of color, of people with um, different abilities, people, you know, that have, uh, that don't look like the white cisgender straight mainstream. Right. Um, so we're figuring this out as we go along and we're going to do it better and then we've done it before and we're going to be part of the change. Maybe we'll be part of the change of all of America. Who knows? But, um, Again, I'm just really thrilled and excited, exhilarated to be a whole part of this movement now. I say America, and then I think that you should, you're the right person to conquer the rest of the world with this. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Me and Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman! Yay. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, why don't you go ahead and give our audiences uh, your social media information? Oh, okay. Um, oh, boy, I don't even hardly know my Twitter handle because I don't use it. I think it's at uh, uh, Real Delia K, Twitter. Um, and I'm on Facebook. I'm the only Delia crop you will ever find on Facebook. Last <laughs> uh, name, K-R-O-P-P. -P. But, but my website is probably the best way to start to find information about me. I put a lot about me and about about what it's like to be a transgender artist on that theater site if people are interested in just, you know, general reading, and that is The Real Delia, just the way it sounds, therealdelia.com. Um, I've got blogs about my, a detailed look at my recent theater projects, a discussion of me, you know, about what, what it's like, because trans people are all very different. 
from each other. Some of us have different comfort zones, different ways that we identify. We're not just all very black and white, so I kind of put out my shades of gray there as well. And there's pictures too. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I love, I love the name, the real Dilia. I think that's a great, great name for a website. Thanks. That's, that's it's it's great. It's catchy. It's wonderful. It covers so many things. So. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Julia. You've been an, an awesome, amazing, informative, enlightening uh, guest, and I just, I just loved having you on and hearing your perspective of the the direction the theater is going in. So, so thank you for being our guest today. Oh, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's our pleasure, and we're gonna we're gonna make sure everybody else listens uh, as when I post this um, uh, very very soon. So. Uh, before we wrap up, I like to give a shout out to shows that I've seen and currently and and really enjoyed. Um, and one that I saw recently was a uh, a show that's put on by the Tassos Theater Company, and that's uh, a theater company whose artistic direct- director I interviewed a couple shows ago. His name is uh, Mark Robert Finley, and he's an, an awesome, great uh, guy. And the show is called Damaged Goods. Um, and Damaged Goods was written by Virginia, and I hope I'm getting this right, uh, Beta? I think, I think that's what it is. And directed by, by Mark Finley himself. And uh, it's part of the Emerging Artists Theater New York season. That's the name of, of the, the uh, company that's putting on various, various works uh, in sort of like a festival-type situation right now. Um, it's a film noir detective story with women playing all the characters of all genders. And it's, it's, it's a fun, clever play with the ladies giving wonderful, detailed performances. It's funny. Um, it's interesting. It has a, a, a cool twist at the end, and, and it wraps up nicely. It's just a real fun night at the theater. It's playing at the Emerging Artists Theater at 15 West 28th Street, and again, it's one of those theaters where it's a big building and you go in and you take an elevator up and there you are in this beautiful theater. Um, it's running this coming Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. It's closing on March 18th. Um, if you want, would like more information, go to uh, tososnyc.org. That's T-O-S-O-S-N-Y-C.org for more information and tickets. Go see it. It's, it's a real fun night. Well, folks, the proverbial 11 o'clock number has been sung and the bows have been taken. So it's time to lower the curtain. I'd like to thank our guest, the awesome and lovely Delia Crop. If you'd like for me to give a shout-out to a show in your area or mention of your organization, go to my Facebook page at https backslash backslash, sorry, I'll just give the www.facebook.com backslash your program is your ticket. Give me a like and shoot me a message. I'll be happy to give you the mention. Folks, take a little time to see a show this week, and don't forget to give a smaller show some love. There are a lot of great theater gems out there. So, folks, till our next show, good night, theater people, and curtain. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.